you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent, and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Well, have you ever been afraid of something that is going to be taken away from you? Have you ever feared something that might be taken away from you? Uh, One of the most uh, afraid moments, fearful moments of my life, I remember I was 19, and uh, I used to coach cricket. And I was running a little bit late uh, to the game, and so I was driving in Sydney, sort of where I grew up, and uh, driving through the back streets that I'd driven through a bunch of times, and there was a stop sign at a a T-junction. And um, I'd stopped there probably a hundred times before, and never once had I stopped for a car that was coming through. And so this time I was running late, and I sort of treated a bit more, not as a stop sign, but as a, a giveaway sign. And, and, and of course, the one time I did that, there was uh, the boys in blue, the police with their lights, following me. 
and, uh, and I got pulled over, so I was very late to the cricket game. Uh, I think a dad had to like, start the game because I was meant to umpire, something like that. It was a bit awkward, but actually, uh, I, got, I, got with a, I got caught with a fine, uh, an offence, which I, I committed. I went through a stop sign. But the, the lovely officer decided to also uh, not only give me uh, driving through a stop sign, which I was definitely guilty of, um, but also he decided to tack on driving in a manner dangerous slash reckless slash furious, which is uh, quite a significant charge, uh, which, which um, extracts a minimum 18-month loss of license, maximum jail time, like a pretty serious charge. And so I was faced with the decision, what do I do? What do I do? Do I, do I cop it or do I fight? Of course, I'm going to fight. And so I, I got a um, legal aid uh, to kind of give me some thoughts and wisdom in that space because I was a 19-year-old punk with not really much of an idea in the legal world. I went to local, a local council, it's a local court. I um, tried to appeal and delay. Uh, I tried to get it pushed back past my 20th birthday so that then I could at least have my full license to get looked upon a bit more favorably. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't quite work. Sort of a month before I turned 20, I got summoned to kind of the big court in Sydney, the Downey Center, uh, if that means anything to you. And, um, and there were all these people like kind of coming through that sort of looked like they belonged in jail. And, uh, and here I was, fresh-faced 19-year-old Mike, um, and went into the courtroom. And it was pretty confronting. I had to give evidence. I had to be cross-examined by the, the police kind of uh, lawyer. And, um, and I was freaking out, you know, getting up in the witness box, you know, like I've seen on TV. Um, and, um, and that was me. And, and I was freaking out. Uh, for, for a few hours, uh, my life felt really um, in other people's hands. Uh, not only was I really afraid of, of losing my license, but also uh, my autonomy, uh, my uh, freedom, uh, my reputation, having to kind of tell that story, having to ask friends for lifts for 18 months, even more. Uh, I was really packing it. <laughs> um, I felt completely helpless in that situation. I remember that was one of the first few moments in my life where I was really felt driven to prayer. I was strolling through Hyde Park in Sydney and I just was praying. I was on my knees and just begging the Lord for mercy. I felt so helpless in that situation. Fear. It's powerful. It's a powerful thing. I did get off, by the way, but it was a pow- it's a powerful thing. Uh, you know, many of you might have moments, two or three moments in your life where you have felt really powerless. You felt afraid. You felt helpless, terrified. But in the day-to-day, we all have fears that drive us, maybe not in the spectacular confronting moments, but in subtle ways. What is it the thing that you wouldn't want taken away from you? Is it fear of losing your health, your reputation, your friendships, relationships, income, career, your satisfaction, experience, the fear of missing out. What's that thing that you would not want sort of taken away from you? I want to show us uh, from uh, God's Word this morning, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 5 and 6 this morning, that fear is actually a good thing when harnessed in the right direction. When harnessed towards God, fear of the Lord. Now, fearing God, it's not a, not a popular topic uh, to talk about today. I've never seen a, a Kurong bestseller, you know, how to fear God um, on the top 10 list. Uh, you know, if you, you've got a, a friend who's not a Christian, you chat to them tomorrow, or how's your weekend? How many of you are going to say, yeah, it was great. We had a great time at church. We talked about fearing God. 
fear of God, it's not something that sort of seems popular. It sort of seems a bit old school, a bit sort of fire and brimstone. And yet, throughout Scripture, fearing God is all across the pages. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear man. What's the worst that men and women can do? All they can do is kill you, but fear God who's in control of all things. In Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verse 7, um, the writer says, Fear of the, of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so the beginning of knowledge. And in 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God, of the Lord, that's our starting point. That should be the lens in which we see the whole, our whole lives. It's the space that we need to play in, recognizing who God is, being in awe of Him, making Him number one. Uh, if you were with us last week, Stephen Koo helpfully showed us that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Unlike uh, Nehemiah or um, Stephen Koo last week, we don't carry around swords. If you were with us last week, he brought a sword uh, to church. He missed that. <laughs> I made sure I patted him down this morning, so he's not, he's not packing anything today. Um, but, before, you know, but our battle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And ultimately, this battle um, that God's people have been facing all throughout history, a spiritual battle between the people of God, between uh, God and the forces of evil, of Satan and his demons, his, his angels. But the big thing I want us to see this morning is that the fear of God equips us to face spiritual battle. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, just to recap, where uh, part of a series, as Lisa said, called Rebuild, um, where we're looking at the books in the Old Testament of Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book, and we're seeing how the people of God are being rebuilt. They've been exiled, uh, they've been kicked out of the promised land, their, their city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed, temples been smashed uh, and, uh, by the Babylonians, and then uh, under the Persians, the next empire that comes along, King Cyrus, he issues a decree which allows them to come back in. And they start rebuilding. Under a leader called Zerubbabel, the temple, it got rebuilt quite quickly. And we saw last week, um, under Nehemiah's leadership, the people working together to, to rebuild the walls, the city walls, uh, despite the insults and the death threats that they copped. However, God, He cares more than just about architecture. He cares about our hearts. He cares about the community, the people being rebuilt. Rebuilding hearts that are on about worshipping God. God's plans are for His people to be under His rule, in His place, under His blessing. And so um, His heart, His goal is, is for a community to be like a good superannuation ad, to be all in this together. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, we, we see last week uh, that Nehemiah, he gives this inspirational speech, appealing to the hearts and minds, and he says um, that... Don't fear men. He says, remember God and fight. Fight for your brothers and sisters. So they pick up their swords in one hand, hammers in another hand. They get back to work, finishing the wall and, and defending their city. Our God will fight for us, Nehemiah says. The crowd cheers. Is this moment of triumph, of victory, where God's people can finally live in the, in the, back in the city in harmony and peace. That's what it seems like. 
Then we get to chapter 5. Come with me. Open up your Bible to chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, we've got some on the info desk we'd love to put in your hands. It'll be up on the screen as well. But we'll see that the battleground shifts. And here's the first point. There is a spiritual battle within the walls. There's a spiritual battle within the walls. Have a look with me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives and their, against their Jewish brothers. There's this great outcry of men and women. It's not a cry of victory, but a cry of pain and anguish and despair against themselves. Man, what a letdown. This is meant to be a high point. The war's getting finished, and yet there's fighting within the family, within the people of God. What's the fight over? Well, it's a classic fight that humans have been fighting over for millennia. Um, check out verse 2. It's the fight over money and power. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There was an economic crisis. There's inflation, food shortages. Iceberg lettuce is, is $9 a head. Sound familiar? This is a time when people were just trying to feed their family and survive. Keep reading. Verse 3, another group of people, those that, those that said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Some people have it so tough they have to sell their stuff in order just to put food on the table for the family. It gets worse. Read verse 4. There were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. The king, Artaxerxes, he imposed a tax on the people and it was sort of based upon the fact that back then in an agricultural society that you'd produce a certain yield of crop and therefore the tax was set that you know, it was based on a good season so you could bring in some money to pay for the king. And yet there was a famine, as we've read about, and so people weren't able to pay this tax. So what did they do? They had to borrow money. But keep reading. Look at where the issues lie, verse 5. Now, our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as, are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But is it not in our power? It is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. In a time when the community was, was hurting, uh, they, they were in economic crisis. Uh, they had to sell their assets and they're left with nothing. What do they have to do? They have to sell their kids into slavery in order to, to, feed, to pay the bills. Uh, you know, for us today, we, we've seen over the last couple of years a global pandemic. We've seen, um, we've seen natural disaster, fires and floods, financial hardship. And yet we've seen many moments of um, beauty in the brokenness. The communities, band, even within this church, banding together to help each other out in the time of need. And yet here we see, in the time of need, uh, Jerusalem is getting exploited. They're family. They're part of God's covenant people. They're meant to be this light to the nation, showing the world about how loving and kind and gracious God is. And yet they're destroying each other forcing each other into slavery in order to pay the bills rather than kicking in and, and passing the bucket around to help each other out. A bunch of them have already sold their property so that all they've got left is their kids. And have a look at Nehemiah's reaction. How's he feeling? Nehemiah, we find out in chapter 6, he's, he's the leader. He's the governor of um, the, the Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Uh, he's the one who's kind of responsible. And he hears the news and he says, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry 
and these words. He's angry. It's the first time we hear that word described about Nehemiah. He's a man of prayer, we see, a man of repentance. But here we see his righteous anger. What does he do? Does he, does he curse them and beat them up and pull out their hair in an act of rage? Well, actually, he, he does that later in chapter 13. Spoiler alert. But in verse 7, uh, we see uh, he pauses. He takes counsel with himself. And he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. He slows down. He stops. He reflects. Um, and, uh, and he's not, you know, as I said, he's not just a random vigilante. He, he's got authority from God and from the state. And he calls a town hall meeting. And who does he call that in particular? Well, it's the nobles and the officials, the leaders. They're the ones who are meant to be looking after the people of God in this time. They're the ones who are meant to be responsible for welfare. Yet, they're the ones who were ripping people off. Now, how awful is it, uh, even today, uh, when we hear of stories, when there is hardship, uh, when there are people facing poverty, and yet those in power take advantage of their, situ- of their situation to improve, to line their own pockets. You know, whether it be uh, weapons dealing and people kind of taking money off the top, corrupt governments in third world countries where facing poverty. It's awful. It breaks our heart. So Nehemiah, he confronts them, verse 7. He says, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. What's happening here? It's a little confusing. The translation exacting interest, it might mean that they've been charging interest. You know, they need to get money and they're charging interest to kind of um, stuff people up and get them in this debt trap. Um, that actually been banned back in Leviticus 25 in, under the law of Moses uh, that we read about uh, in, um, in the Torah, in the third book of the Bible. But some translators also have it as, as like a pledge that they were uh, trading their assets for food. And as a result, uh, the people in poverty were kind of taken away any sort of security that they had. But either way, uh, what's clear is that the leaders were taking advantage of people's misfortune and using it to build their own portfolio. It's dodgy. What does Nehemiah do? Well, verse 7 and 8, he says, I've held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we're able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. There's this tragic irony here that God's plans were to, to, to rescue his people out of slavery, out of the nations, and yet through um, their leaders' exploitations, they were putting people back into slavery where they'd come from. Nehemiah twice used the word brothers. Uh, they're family. This is not how you treat family. In verse 8, we read that the, the people, the leaders, in response, that they can say nothing. They're just they can't defend themselves, like me going through a stop sign. Guilty as charged. Nehemiah, he confronts them. Verse 9, he says, The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the torts of the nations, our enemies? What you're doing here is wrong. You're fighting amongst yourselves inside your walls. What you should be doing is walking in the fear of God. God is the one who has been protecting us against our enemies. God's the one who's been faithful. He's rescued us from Egypt. He's given us the land. We're back in. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've seen how the good hand of God has been with his people. Even through um, pretty fearsome kings, uh, God's grace has been shown. 
God's preserved his people. The city is being rebuilt. And yet these leaders were trusting not in God, but in themselves. Fearing God is the antidote to bickering amongst ourselves. In having the right view of God, it's trusting Him for provision. It means that we loosen our grip on the things of this world. If these leaders had trusted God, feared Him, they'd relied on His provision rather than trying to take control for themselves and ripping people off. And so instead of glorifying God, they were succumbing to Satan. Satan, he's the enemy of God, the great accuser, the one who tries to stand in the way of God's plans. In contrast, we see Nehemiah here. Nehemiah, as governor, he's given ample opportunity to pursue his own financial gain. We won't read every verse, but um, as governors, to summarize, governors, that they have the um, sort of a stipend, an allowance given from the king to kind of spend as they please. But um, Nehemiah, despite the previous governors before him, they don't, he doesn't lord it over. He denies his right for this an allowance. He says in verse 15, I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. He said no to the money and even used what he did have to provide food for people. He welcomed people, practiced hospitality, even strangers. 150 people, even more around his table were gathered. Why? Because he ultimately cared more about God's glory than his own empire, rebuilding God's kingdom rather than his own bank account, sacrificing his own prosperity and wealth for the sake of others. Now, for us today, uh, we, we can heed this, that money, it, we know this, right? Money, it, it can cause problems. It can destroy communities. Now, I once nearly lost a friendship over a game of Monopoly. <laughs> True story. I can chat to you about that later. But when it's real money, when we're playing for keeps, that has the power to rip apart families, uh, destroy, fracture friendship, and really, r- really destroy community, the fabric and trust um, that underpins us. We of the people of God, we're, we're called to look after each other. Uh, primarily, God says to look after your biological family, but beyond that, uh, we uh, around this room, uh, a church, we're part of God's family, God's forever family, as, as the kids' Bible I read to my daughter says. Uh, it's actually thicker than blood. It's actually eternal. Uh, we have God as our Father, Jesus, our older brother. Uh, by the Spirit, we're united. We're one body, and so we're we're called to actually look after each other and even financially. I love um, hearing. I love the fact that many many of you have been generous financially in, uh, in, being, in giving over and above to allow others to come along to camp. Um, we've had more people say, hey, Mike, if anyone, need, if anyone can't afford it wants to come to camp, let me know. I've had more people say that than I know what to do with. Like, um, there's, there's an abundance of generosity of people, which is super encouraging. I love also hearing stories of, um, of, of small business owners amongst you that are employing others from church, uh, giving them opportunities, giving them work experience, uh, using their goods and services, uh, looking after each other that way. Keep doing that, but let's not take advantage of generosity, but keep looking out for each other. Keep sharing when you have, um, when you have struggles, and, and God has given you a family here to help provide for your needs. But on a deeper level, deeper than just finances... We need to be aware that there's a spiritual battle that happens, even sometimes within these walls, inside the church. G.K. Chesterton, uh, the great English writer of the early 20th century, he said this, that the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies 
Probably because they're generally the same people. Hmm. And as we think about opposition, what comes to your mind? For me, so often I jump to what's going on out there. You know, maybe it's the culture wars. Maybe it's how Christians are portrayed in media, in social media. That's where the battle is. It's all out there. But the Bible warns us time and time again that so often the battle, the, the spiritual battleground is actually happening right here. Satan, the devil, he'll, he'll use whatever he can to take us away from the mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. When we're fighting within, with each other, within the church, Satan, he, he laughs with delight. It's like we're scoring an own goal. The Apostle Paul, he, he warns us of this. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, it's about a church that's divided. There's people that are arguing over which preacher they like better. They're taking each other to court. They're bragging about you know, sleeping with their mother-in-law, about which spiritual gifts they had. It's a mess. You know, it's easy to kind of point out kind of obvious, almost caricature-like um, churches like that. You know, there's been plenty of high-profile churches and church leaders uh, that have failed, uh, that have imploded. And yet, uh, the Bible also gives us lots of more subtle, pervasive warnings that perhaps hit closer to home. I'm wondering for us uh, today, right here, right now, one thing that we need to be wary of is gossip. Something we need to take heed to. Paul says in the letter of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a doctor. There's some doctors in the room. <laughs> but gangrene, right? I'm not going to put gangrene up on the big screen. don't want to give you nightmares. But it's a vivid image, right? A vivid image of, um, of, of this disease that spreads and infects and, and invades the body. Last week we saw um, in James 4, uh, the tongue. Uh, the tongue is uh, one of the most dangerous parts of the body. Uh, it's got the power to both build up and destroy. And Satan, he knows that. And the tongue, it can be like his dagger that he uses to kind of stab us from the inside. We do the work for him when we gossip, when we're ungracious, uncharitable, unkind with our words, when we assume the worst in people. We lead ourselves and others into ungodliness. Uh, Finally, to be honest with, with you guys, I, I confess this is something that I struggle with. I, um, as an extrovert who, who's a verbal processor, so often I feel silence and I speak before I think. Uh, I can recall uh, times when I've asked you to do something before even asking how you are. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry if you've ever felt taken advantage of or used. I'm sorry if I've been a bulldozer, ask you to do a task, serve on a team when um, you're struggling, when uh, you felt pressured into saying no. Church, let me clear this up. Uh, you can always say no to me. Hold me accountable in love. Let's hold each other accountable in love. How? Well, first and foremost, by fearing God and caring about His honor first and foremost. Let's not be hamstrung by each other's opinion or reputation. But let's seek to first and foremost, seek to please God and then loving others. Church, we're going to step on each other's toes. Church camp, I think, is a great opportunity to do a whole lot of stepping on each other's toes. We should expect that as we uh, get away for a weekend and be in close proximity to each other. Friends, let's be ready to forgive each other. 
Let's live peaceably with each other. Some of you I know have tension with someone else at church right now. If that's you, can I encourage you, don't wait for them to resolve it. Be proactive. Uh, be the first mover and go and, and try to deal with that person. Uh, maybe it's one-on-one. Maybe you bring someone else uh, into that space. I'm happy to help uh, provide wisdom or um, what little wisdom I have. I'm happy to help provide uh, counsel and step in and pray for you in that as well. So we've seen there's a spiritual battle. It happens uh, inside the walls. But secondly, and much more quickly, there's a spiritual battle going on outside the walls. This has been a big theme uh, throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. Opposition that happens outside of the community of God. Uh, come with me to chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Uh, now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, we've seen these, these punks before, and the rest of our enemies heard that I built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I'd not set up the doors in, in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in the Hakfa room in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Sambo and Toby, you know, they're up to their old tricks. You know, we're meant to kind of boo them when we hear their names because they're the ones that are trying to, you know, oppose God's plan. Um, they hear the walls pretty much done, so they try to get Nehemiah to stop. Four times they say, like, they say hey, we want to meet you in this valley of oh no, ever there was an ominous name of a valley. Oh no, that can't be good. It's not good. So Nehemiah thinks to himself, no, that can't be good. And so what happens? Four times um, he gets his message. On the fifth time, uh, instead of sending a message saying, hey, come meet me here, um, he gets sent a letter, an open letter, spreading a rumor um, that the Jews want to rebel against Persia and Nehemiah wants to set himself up as king. Just this complete lie. Nehemiah responds in verse 8 saying, No such things, as you say, have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work, the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. He shuts down the rumors and he puts his trust and fear in God. Then in verse 10, um, things escalate a bit. We meet this other guy, Shemaiah, and uh, have a look at what he says. Verse 10, um, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, he says to Nehemiah. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Now, this might have been a believable story. Uh, It already had death threats. Uh, And so Nehemiah, he says, he gets told, hey, come, come with me to the temple. You'll be safe there. In the temple, it's God's special building. Surely he'll be safe there. Absolutely not. Verse 11, Nehemiah says, I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah, he knows his Bible. He knows he's not a priest. He can't just go into the temple. Exodus 33.20 says, no one can be in God's presence and live. The temple, remember, that's where God's glory was. You can't, you can't just go in there and hide. And so it's, a, it's all a trap. It's all a deception. It's all a setup. In the face of external opposition, Nehemiah doesn't fear these guys. He fears God. The devil, he only has two weapons, distraction and deception. His agenda 
is to take people away from Jesus and building his church. That's the same for us today. Now, back then, Sambo and Toby, they kept saying, hey, Nehemiah, 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 stop, stop, stop. They try to get him to put down his tools and stop building. They're distracting him. You know, in Brisbane for us, uh, 2022, I don't know what you think about spiritual warfare. Like, maybe you're like, I haven't seen kind of heads roll. I haven't seen kind of people go into convulsions. I haven't seen this kind of crazy stuff that happens on whatever Netflix drama I watch about, you know, satanic forces or demon possessions. But friends, Satan doesn't need to do that stuff today. If he's distracted you, he's won. If you spend a couple hours a day on social media, scrolling through, watching another episode on Netflix, and you don't pick up your Bible, Satan's won that day. If you're filling your life from one thing to another, you know whether it's work, socializing, holidays, activities, whatever it is, hobbies, and you don't get down on your knees in prayer that day, Satan's won. For us, as a community, if our conversations don't look any different from people out there, you know, if, if we never look any different to what the average Brisbane person is saying, if we're never pointing people to Jesus, if we're never confessing sin to each other, if we're never praying for and with each other, if we're never asking for help when we need it, if we're just a mirror onto the world, Satan's one. It's another one for his chalkboard. Distraction. It's a powerful tool. It's a subtle tool. But that's, that's what Satan has in his armory. And the other thing is deception. Now, like Sambo, who tried to deceive Nehemiah, Satan deceives us. He, you know, have you ever stuffed up? Have you ever um, done something that you feel ashamed about? Uh, maybe uh, you've gotten drunk and done something stupid. Maybe uh, you've looked at a website that you had you, you regret. Uh, maybe you've felt really angry or bitter about someone, and you've thought, "Man, there's no way that that God." would love me. There's no way that God could forgive me. There's no way I can approach God right now. I can't pray right now. I need to kind of do some good works to kind of clean my hands. Friends, that's all a lie. That's just Satan getting in your ear, in your mind, convincing you that you can't go near God. And yet God, he's always forgiving. He's always kind. There's always more grace. I love how um, 16th century reformer Martin Luther he, um, he, I love how he responds to the devil. Um, he says this. He says, when the devil comes at night to worry me, this is what I say to him. Devil, I have to sleep now. That is God's commandment. For us to work by day and sleep at night. If he keeps on nagging me and trots out my sins, then I answer, sweet devil, I know the whole list. But I've done even more sin, which is not on your list. He's like, he's at night, he's in bed, he's in his PJs, and he's like, hey, you know, he feels like Satan's trying to bring him down. I know your sin. Luther's like, no, no, you don't even know my sin. There's even something else that I've done which, which you haven't, you don't know about. It's not on your list. And uh, I'm not going to put it up on the screen. It's a little bit colorful, but, but Luther's like, I've actually wet the bed um, and it's brown. Um, he says that in German. It's, uh, it's crazy. But, um, but Luther, right, he's lying in bed. Satan's kind of telling him how much of a sinner he is. He's like, you don't even know all of it. There's more dirt on me. It's gross than I, that... that that is on my record. And yet, look at the confidence that Luther has in the gospel, the confidence he has in the face of spiritual warfare. Check out this quote. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares to you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I know, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I, there I shall be also. Church, this is good news. Regardless of what you've done, where you've been, it doesn't matter. Like There's nothing that can go on your record that Jesus can't wipe away. You're always worthy to come back to him. Jesus knows your record, and yet he says, if you trust in me, if you trust in what I've done on the cross, I'm going to welcome you back into the family. As a son, as a daughter, you get a share of the inheritance. You have hope forever. You are now a friend of mine. You can always come back to Jesus, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you have done. So we've seen the spiritual battle. It's within the walls. It's outside the walls. The antidote to that is fearing God, having the right perspective and awe of Him. But finally, uh, I'll wrap up with this. In Jesus, the spiritual war has been won. In Jesus, the spiritual war has been won. God versus Satan. It's not this kind of contest, this battle between good and evil where we're kind of struggling to find out what's going to be the outcome. It's not like the decider in State of Origin 3 where we don't know the outcome. Go the Blues. But God wins. God wins. That's the outcome to the spiritual battle. In fact, he's already won. When God wants to do something, it happens. Nothing gets in the way of his plans. Come with me to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Look at what God does in the face of both internal and external opposition to the rebuild project. Nehemiah 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The wall was built in 52 days. It's like seven and a half weeks. Can you imagine any construction project in Brisbane being built, being, being built in 52 days? My neighbours said they were going to finish their house in January. They're still going. Can you imagine a government project being finished in 52 days? How is that possible? Unless the Lord builds his house, the labourers work in vain. The enemies of God. They see it as a miracle. They're afraid at the one who's behind all this. They don't want to mess with God who's able to get stuff done. Back in Nehemiah chapter 1, we read that Nehemiah spent four months in prayer. That's more than 52 days. It's 120 or so days praying, fasting, before they sort of get to the physical task of building the wall. How do we fight the spiritual battle today? We pray. We pray. 20th century English evangelist Leonard Ravenhill, he says this, I love this quote, he says, prayer is not preparation for the battle, prayer is the battle. Prayer is not preparation for the battle, it is the battle. Friends, the battle begins, it's on our knees, it's not like, all right, I pray and then the real work happens. No, prayer is the work. We fight the battle knowing that the outcome, knowing we're on the victorious team if we trust in Jesus. As, as we wrap up, um, as we invite the band up, let me turn to Revelation chapter 19, all the way down the end of your Bible. Here we see the outcome. Here we see what happens to Satan. 
at the end of this spiritual warfare. We see a picture of Jesus in all his glory. It's not Jesus kind of with blonde hair, blue eyes, I don't know why he has that, striking a lamb um, and children gathering around in his arms. This is a picture of Jesus that you don't want to mess with. Jesus in all of his glory. Come with me to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. This is John. This is Jesus, the, Jesus close, one of closest followers, the one who he loves. He meets Jesus in, in Revelation 1. He falls on his face as though dead because he's so freaked out by seeing the resurrected Jesus. Have a look at him in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. Jesus, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head, are many items, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, that's our Lord Jesus, who we want to know and make known. He's the captain of the winning team. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got blood dripped on his robe. He's got a, a tattoo on his thigh with a name that only he knows. He's a guy you do not want to mess with. You don't want to bump into him on a dark alley. Jesus, he's the victor. And have a look at what happens to his opponents. Come down to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the, done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Friends, there's heaps going on here. There's some confusing imagery. We're not, I'm going to unpack that all right now. But the, look at the big picture. Team Jesus, they win. We win if we trust in Jesus. Our battle, it's not against humans. It's against satanic forces and often things that we don't really see. I know we don't kind of talk about them in Western culture. It's so often it's behind the scenes. But friends, people opposing Jesus, the force up against Jesus, they're going to lose. The devil, he's going to get a roundhouse kick to his face, a smackdown, because Jesus wins. It's not going to end well for those who oppose Jesus. Friends, let me ask you this. Where's your allegiance? Whose team are you on? Is your hope? Are you trusting? Are you ultimately fearing God? Because He's the one who's in control. Is He, is Jesus not just your Savior, but your Lord? Or are you tempted to be on Team Brisbane, Team Australia, Team the World? Are you tempted to, to drift? away from the things of God. Live for yourself, being influenced by the world around you. Friends, 
We've seen the outcome. We've seen how it ends. Can I urge you to put your trust in Jesus, to live for Him? Maybe you've got more questions. We'd love to engage with you. love to chat with you more. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.